Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 384, King Harold Godwinson. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Carrie, Max, and Emma for signing up already. King Edward was dead. Harold was now king. And Edith? Well, Edith was sidelined. And as far as the Vita Edwardi was concerned, this was the moment where the wheels came completely off the wagon. And honestly, the Chronicle starts to look a little unenthusiastic at around this point, too, with various versions seeming to express reservations about the new King Harold. And it's version D that becomes the most blunt about it, actually stating that the throne was Edgar the Atheling's, quote, proper due. However, despite the scribe's belief that it was Edgar the Atheling's proper due, when fighting breaks out to try and get Edgar that throne, they change their opinion. You know those people who talk about how much they support a cause, but then they flip out when a march to support that cause interrupts their commute? That's version D. But regardless of whether one felt that Harold was the harbinger of doom or just another guy on a throne, the fact remains that his elevation to king was quick and it was a shock to many as he wasn't a member of the royal dynasty. Now, had things gone well, these were facts that may have been forgotten or at least forgiven. But we all know that they don't. And so many of the scribes who are writing about these events were looking back at the terrible events to follow, having personally lived through them, and drawing some conclusions. And they seem to have seen the crowning of Harold as the beginning of the end. And he's kind of an easy target when you think about it. Because while the Godwinsons had enjoyed enormous power in the kingdom for quite some time, they were also steeped in controversy. The eldest Godwinson, Swain, had been a hot mess from start to finish. He was exiled multiple times, he launched wars against the crown, he even got his entire family exiled, and they threatened to drag the kingdom into civil war to bring him back. And that was just one brother. Then you have Harold's younger brother, Tostig, who was, by all accounts, a humorless dick who had to be exiled for his own safety because all of Northumbria was ready to murder him. And that was just the recent history. There's also their grandfather, who got on the wrong side of the previous king, Athelred, and turned to piracy in response. This family made the Gucci's look stable and relatable. But, but Harold did seem to be a little bit different. People at least seemed to like him. Though despite how much people may have liked him, there really was just no getting around the fact that this family's rise to power had been very ugly and very public. No matter where you went in England or beyond, there were skeletons falling out of closets. A lot of skeletons. Including a prince's skeleton. Do you remember that? Godwin had been blamed for, and appears to have been at the very least involved in, the murder of King Edward's brother. The grudges and the blood feuds that this family were embroiled in are just incredible. And then you have Harold's own actions. Because despite how likable Harold was, he was also bold. And if you were on the receiving end of one of those bold actions, you might not feel all that fond of him. For example, 
Once Harold was crowned, one of his first actions appears to have been to repossess Sussex lands in Steining. And when he did that, he expelled the Norman monks who were living there. Now, the English at this point weren't all that fond of Normans holding English lands, and this repossession would have been well within the king's authority. But it was a provocative move towards Normandy, and that really was the last thing that anyone needed at this particular point in time. So even if the English weren't too worried about the monks' feelings, they might not be too happy that Harold was heightening tensions with the guy that those monks answered to. Furthermore, now that Harold was king, the entire kingdom was tied to their king's past. And that past was a mixed bag. For example, one of his biggest accomplishments, which had propelled him to nigh unreachable influence within England, was the murder of King Gruffith of Wales. Now, Harold hadn't personally taken his head, and it doesn't appear that he even ordered his death. But Harold sure was the guy who presented that head to King Edward. So Harold was on the hook for that grisly murder. And that was a problem, because King Gruffith was an ally of Earl Elfgar of Mercia. The two were linked through a marriage pact and had also fought together in battle. The two men were, it seems, close allies. But this link went past the friendship of just two men. Their dynasties appear to have actually been close as well. So that murder resulted in Earl Elfgar having yet another reason to beef with the Godwinsons, and also, because it's dynastic, that grudge was handed down to his kids. Which meant that when Elfgar died, and his son Edwin took command of Mercia, well, he took it with some feelings regarding the people in Wessex. And that baggage gets worse, because you also might recall that when Northumbria rebelled against Harold's brother Tostig, they sought Morcar, the brother of Earl Edwin of Mercia, to take the job. And since Morcar was part of the same family, he no doubt held the same family grudge. So with the elevation of Harold came a significant political grudge with one of England's closest neighbors, Wales, and also a serious risk of a dynastic rift with a pair of brothers who just so happened to hold about half of England. And as I mentioned last episode, this coronation was handled so quickly that many people outside of London didn't even know that King Edward was dead. But they were finding out now. And Northumbria, in particular, had some thoughts. Now, you all know by now that Northumbria was a complicated territory. It was wild. It was rebellious. Blood feuds decorated family trees like lace. And assassination was a gentleman's hobby. And beyond that, it also kept close cultural and political bonds with Scandinavia. And Scandinavia harbored a number of claimants for the English throne. So Northumbria was always going to be a problem for a southern monarch. But for Harold, this was a particularly sticky wicket. Because less than a year ago, Northumbria had ousted a Godwinson. And not even the king could stop them from doing it. And now, a different Godwinson was the king of England. Yikes. Out of all the earldoms of England, this one was the most anti-Godwinson and they also had their own preferred list of claimants to the throne. At the top of that list were Harold Hedrada and Swain Ethrison. But that is also assuming that Northumbria even wanted to be part of England in the first place, and that wasn't exactly guaranteed. 
this territory had been long neglected by the southern-dominated court. No Watanagamot had been held in Northumbria or in Mercia in living memory. King Edward had never even visited Northumbria. In fact, even when they were in rebellion, the king didn't bother to meet with them, choosing instead to try and raise an army against them. He only agreed to bend to their demands when his military campaign failed, but even then, he didn't actually meet with them. He delegated negotiations to his chief counselor, Harold. So Northumbria increasingly looked more like an occupied territory rather than an equal part of the kingdom. And it was a barely occupied territory at that. And all that neglect and public fecklessness no doubt had a major impact on the way the North viewed the crown. Because one of the main ways that the English kings secured their throne was to be seen as ruling. That was one of the main purposes of the traveling court. The king needed to be seen being a king. But in the North, he was nothing more than a rumor. So after decades of abandonment and failure, it was left to Harold, of all people, to pick up the pieces and convince these folks that they were actually English and subjects to the crown. And considering that he was a Godwinson, and considering that his claim to the throne basically broke down to some guy who never visited you said I could have the throne, and then a group of men you've never met or heard of said it was okay, well, this was going to be an uphill battle. Though, to his credit, Harold seemed to know how much trouble he was in. In fact, it looks like he put Northumbria at the center of his coronation. Based on what evidence can be found, including comments by chroniclers like Florence of Worcester, the general consensus among historians is that Harold was crowned by Archbishop Eldred of York. Now, there are a few competing Norman accounts which claim that Harold was crowned by Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. However, at this point, Stigand would have been far too controversial a figure to carry out a coronation. In fact, at this point, he was actually excommunicated due to his continued refusal to give up the See of Winchester. And beyond the sheer politics of the matter and how bad it would look, you also have the fact that as an excommunicated bishop, he didn't have the authority to carry out a coronation. Stigan didn't have a pallium, and he hadn't even been consecrating bishops because, you know, he was literally excommunicated. So expecting that he'd just be like, well, I can't do it for bishops, but I'll definitely do it for a king, is quite a stretch. And honestly, if Stigan had even attended the coronation at all, most historians agree he would have been there as a witness or maybe to help out and hold stuff. There is almost no way that Harold would have wanted to start off his reign by being anointed by this guy. So most historians believe that the Norman claims that Stigand did the consecration were nothing more than propaganda seeking to establish the godlessness of King Harold. And instead, it's extremely likely that the ceremony was carried out as it was described by the English scribes by Eldred, the Archbishop of York. And choosing Eldred had three clear benefits. First, he was an archbishop, which, you know, was kind of necessary for this ceremony. Second, he wasn't f***ing excommunicated, which really should go without saying, but it is 1066, and in 1066, things have absolutely come off the rails. 
But the third reason is probably the most important of the lot and why he was the right man for the job. Eldred was from Northumbria, and thus his central role would demonstrate that Harold, unlike his predecessor Edward, was taking an interest in the North. It was a smart political move, and Harold doesn't stop there. He also ensured that Earl Edwin of Mercia and Earl Morcar of Northumbria were present at his coronation. And critically, there's no indication that Morcar or his brother Edwin opposed Harold as king. And many historians believe that Harold secured their support by promising to marry their sister, Eldgith. But however it was done, the Witan was attended by the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, and the ceremony was carried out by the Archbishop of York, and no objections were raised in the election or the ceremony. Harold's record in diplomacy may have been a little spotty up to now, but this really was a clear indication that he was taking his new job seriously. Because here's the thing. I know I've been using the word elected when talking about how Harold was selected as king, but I don't want you to think that this was in any way democratic. This was a group of the most powerful men in England who either inherited their position or were personally selected by a superior and they decided what they wanted. And that was it. If you were living during this time period, you wouldn't have a say in who was king. It wasn't like Unferth was electing a churl, who would then elect a thane, who then would elect an earl, who, if he was powerful enough, could attend a witan and elect a king. This wasn't a republic. Unferth the churls, most thanes, and even some earls were just along for the ride, and only a very small number of people got a say in pretty much anything, and even their say was limited. The fact was, if you weren't a member of the Witan, and you wanted a say in their decisions, you had few options. And truthfully, one of the only exceptions to this rule was the Northumbria method. Be the change you want to see in the world. So trying to keep this region happy was wise. The trouble, though, was just because Earl Morcar of Northumbria had given his blessing in exchange for his sister didn't mean that his earldom was about to sign on to Harold Godwinson becoming their king. After all, Morcar wasn't Northumbrian. He was just their earl. And honestly, the odds are good that the nobility of Northumbria had only agreed to Morcar becoming their earl because they needed mercy and support to oust Tostig during the rebellion. And the fact is that there were at least three candidates who would have been much more palatable to the Northumbrians for that earldom, all things being equal. There was Oswulf, son of Earl Edwulf, who was the scion of the dynasty of Uhtred the Bold. There was Waltheof, son of Earl Seward, yes, that Seward. And there was Gospatric, the son of Maldred, son of Crinan, who very well may have been that Crinan, the father of King Duncan of Scotland, who had fought with Macbeth. All three were strong candidates from powerful dynasties who held a lot of influence over the region. But the last thing the Northumbrian rebellion needed was an internal fight over leadership. What they needed most was support, so Morcar made the most sense at the time. But at the end of the day, he still wasn't one of them. And so his consent probably didn't carry as much weight as Harold would have hoped. And for the Northumbrians, 
Harold probably wasn't the only thing that was concerning them. There was also the fact that should Harold be allowed to reign as king, he might allow Tostig to return to England and might even reinstate him as the Earl of Northumbria. Tostig, the dude who had murdered people who'd come to his chambers under a pledge of peace. The same guy who was likely rumored to have fed servants to his brother out of jealousy. The guy who was so awful that the people who were governed by him preferred civil war over spending one more day under his rule. That Tostig. And nothing about his behavior suggests that if he came back to Northumbria, he would turn over a new leaf and let bygones be bygones. So this meant that you had a bunch of Northumbrians, including Northumbrians from very powerful local dynasties, who were feeling a little unruly. They were already culturally and politically unlikely to follow the lead of their Mercian Earl. But now they also knew that they would be in mortal danger if King Harold decided to bring back his shitbird of a brother. So it took less than a week before messengers started coming back with reports that the North were shocked to hear that a Godwinson had been crowned without anyone consulting them. The subtext was clear. Northumbria did not consent to this man ruling over them. And the fact was, Northumbria had experience in ousting Godwinsons from power. Even Godwinsons with royal support. Oh, f**k. And William of Malmesbury tells us that in response to this, Harold rushed north, accompanied by Bishop Wolfstan of Worcester. And he probably did exactly that, since Malmesbury himself got the story from Bishop Wolfstan's chaplain, Coleman. It's a strange but lucky thing to have this informational chain of custody of how this story came to us, because otherwise we might be more skeptical about this tale. But this does appear to be a credible story, and it tells us the kind of King Harold was right from the very start. And Harold begins his reign with a bang. Despite the threat of rebellion, and the recent danger that this territory had posed to his own family, Harold rode north as a king. Not as a general. He didn't summon his huskarls and furred. Instead, the king, and thus the court, since the court was wherever the king was, was going to Northumbria with a bishop. He wasn't seeking war or conflict. Instead, he planned to address their concerns and seek their consent. This kind of consideration of the Northern Territories hadn't been seen in England for decades. And honestly, it had been decades since the Crown showed a direct interest in these sort of affairs in general. When Edward encountered problems, he typically just sent Godwin or Harold to sort it out. And Edward took after his father Athelred in that way. As you might recall, Athelred generally had his men, often Edric Strayona, handle matters for him as well. And even when talks broke down and armies were summoned, Edward, again like Athelred, stayed in the back and let others deal with it. But not Harold. Harold was handling this personally. And he wasn't writing to war. He sought their consent. He was ruling as the kings of England were expected to rule. And once he arrived, a council was gathered. The Northerners, long neglected when it came to courtly pomp, were finally being given their due. 
Furthermore, Malmesbury tells us that while this trip was King Harold's plan, and that it was his desire to see the conflict come to a peaceful resolution, it was Wolfstan who took the lead in addressing the concerns of the Northumbrians. Now, I should point out that Malmesbury tells us this in his recounting of the life of Wolfstan, which comes from Wolfstan's chaplain. So this account has an obvious bias towards Wolfstan. But it is possible that Harold really did let Wolfstan do most of the talking. And that might have been strategically wise, because Wolfstan wasn't a Godwinson. And beyond that, the life of Wolfstan claims that those assembled had an ancient culture which respected Bishop Wolfstan's rights more than King Harold's. Which also may be true. Northumbria was never particularly all that interested in being English, but they were Christian. And so the account tells us that the bishop approached them gently, but also firmly. He spoke in prophetic terms about how much danger they were under if they persisted. And again, using prophetic terms, how much danger they were placing England under. And honestly, that's a smart plan. Explaining in detail the problems of succession crises, family trees, the issues of having a teenage king if they really liked Edgar, and the risks of foreign invasion, all of that would have taken a long time, and it also would have run the risk of the nobles getting confused and digging in. Have you ever tried to explain climate change to your uncle? It's pretty much like that. Wolfstan knew that the smarter way to get Uncle Frank to stop rolling coal was to appeal to his value system. Your graphs aren't going to help. Stir it a little religious imagery and keep it simple. And after Wolfstan warmed up the crowd, the account tells us that Harold spoke up and he submitted himself to the judgment of the Northumbrians. He promised them that as king, he would root out wickedness, bring peace, and promote justice throughout the kingdom. And this actually seems to have worked. The Northumbrians were willing to set aside their dislike of the Southerners and their opposition to this particular southern dynasty, and accept Harold as king. Though the life of Wolfstan does add that this may have gone very differently if Tostig was around. And while the life doesn't mention it, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this council went unrecorded, and that among the unrecorded things that Harold may have promised were probably Tostig not being allowed to return to England. Now, there are some other records regarding Harold's trip north, and they come out of Normandy. And those writers claim that Harold married Eldgith, the sister of Earls Morcar and Edwin, on his visit to York. Now, only the Normans write of a marriage taking place during this visit to York. And honestly, it's really weird and highly unlikely. First of all, Eldgith was Mercian, not Northumbrian, so it's unclear why this timing and location would benefit Harold in the eyes of the Northumbrian nobility at all. Furthermore, these Norman accounts sound more like a rumor that they heard. And the fact is that I would expect records like the Chronicle, or at least the life of Wolfstan, to have mentioned something as important as a king marrying during this trip. And they don't. So my guess is that no marriage took place during that trip. And if there was a marriage agreement between Harold and Elfgar's dynasty, it would have been struck prior to the Witan selecting Harold as king, since that would have been the moment when Edwin and Morcar would have had the most influence. But regardless of whether or not this council included wedding bells, 
the northern crisis was, well, at the very least, down to a simmer. Everyone agreed that Harold was king. And many might have been rather optimistic about their new king, considering the tone that he was setting early in his rule. In fact, John of Worcester tells us, quote, As soon as he took over the government of the kingdom, he began to abolish bad laws and establish good ones, to become a patron of the churches and monasteries, to both cherish and venerate bishops, abbots, monks, and clerks, to show himself kind, humble, and affable to all good men, but hateful to all malefactors. For he ordered earls, eldermen, and sheriffs, and all his servants to arrest all thieves, robbers, and disturbers of the kingdom. And for the defense of the fatherland, he himself labored on land and sea, end quote. So, at least as far as John of Worcester is concerned, this new king was energetically throwing himself into the job and was doing his best to make good on his oaths and duties. And in complete contrast to the reclusive King Edward, his subjects would see him working to secure the kingdom as best as he could, not just through domestic policy, but also through defense. This is high praise. And Malmesbury echoes this assessment, but he does add some shade by repeating Norman propaganda. Quote, Because of his character, if he had obtained the kingdom lawfully, he would have ruled it wisely and bravely. End quote. Basically, Malmesbury is saying, yeah, I think we all agree this king was cool as f***. It's a shame the Witten illegally made him king, like they've been doing for centuries. Anyway, check out my boy William over here. He took the kingdom by slaughtering a ton of people like a legal king. Remember, there are never autocrats without enablers. But yeah, Harold looks like he was working hard and focusing on stabilizing the kingdom and bringing it peace. In fact, when he issued coins, which he did very quickly and through at least 44 separate mints, he had packs stamped upon it, the Latin word for peace. And in a break from King Edward's coinage, Harold was facing left rather than right when his image appeared on the coin. Harold was doing his best to demonstrate it was a new day in England, and he was seeking to turn a new page. And Harold's efforts seemed to have been working. Even Duke William's hype man, William of Poitiers, had to admit how well England was doing under Harold's rule, and how wealthy the kingdom was. Though I should add that Bishop Wolfstan also commented on that, but considered this a bad thing. In the life of Wolfstan, there's a record where he gives Harold an earful about how prosperity leads to sin, and what the English really needed was struggle. And I'll give you one guess as to how much struggling Bishop Wolfstan was willing to do once it reached English shores. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. For now, things were good, and the king was on the ball. Mercia and Northumbria were calm, and at home in the south, Harold was quickly moving to put out potential fires. His remaining brothers, Leofwina and Gerth, were given territories to govern over, Harold probably enlarged their holdings by taking some lands from his own properties in Wessex and handing them over to his brothers, which would have been pretty smart. I mean, you don't want to have another Tostig or Swain on your hands, so better keep those brothers happy. Even Hakon, Harold's nephew by way of Swain, was granted lands. So stability, after all these years, was returning to the island. And then there was Normandy. 
Now, Normandy was a whole thing. And I've been doing a series on Duke William over on the members feed to try and give a little extra background to the man. But what happens to England is not just the story of one guy and his personal psychology. It's much, much bigger than that. And the culture of Normandy sits at the center of it. You see, what was going on in 11th century Normandy, and actually much of Western Europe, carried a cultural weight. And under that weight, the continent was beginning to creak. While Britain had carried on in its northern mix of honor cultures and dynastic wrangling, much of Western Europe had already entered a nasty little phase called chivalry. Now, some of you listening might have positive or romantic associations with that word. For centuries, popular culture has tried really hard to make it cool. The 12th and 13th century Arthurian legends, for example, are in part a promotion of chivalry. You also have Chaucer, who did his part. And so did Disney. Even Heath Ledger, supported by the timeless music of Queen, added a little polish to chivalric culture. Everyone's done their part to make this thing popular. And it's important to note that as time passes, different eras and cultures have had an opportunity to define what was and wasn't chivalric, which means that there isn't one chivalric culture in the popular imagination. It's a container for all our fairy tales set in medieval fun time land. And so chivalry as a social imaginary has changed throughout time, reflecting the top values of whatever era was telling the tale at the time. But many of us conjure one particular period or group of people when we hear the word chivalry, and often is different depending on the person. For example, a lot of people think of the Crusades, where chivalry was linked with knightly brotherhoods, each following a specific code of morality and often carrying out their own particular rites and ceremonies. You know that Ridley Scott film, Kingdom of Heaven? That's a particularly obsessive example of this. Others might have more modern applications. For example, how men and women behave towards each other. For those people, chivalry is about the romantic performance of gender roles. Men who open doors for ladies or guard red solo cups at a party are seen as carrying on the knightly tradition of chivalric manners towards women. This thing has morphed and developed over the course of about a thousand years. So it's taken on many, many different roles. And personally, other than a few fun movies, I really don't think it's been good for anyone. But the point I'm making is that when I say the word chivalry, it carries a lot of baggage and it means different things to different people. But for the people of the 11th century, it wasn't about opening doors, or ladies giving their favor at a joust, or Orlando Bloom getting slapped by Liam Neeson. It was something else, and it's right there in the name. Cheval is the French word for horse, and chivalry was the cult of horsemanship and of war. Chivalry was a cultural disaster. And I think the scale of this disaster is only understood with contrasts. So consider the difference between the culture we've been talking about in our show and how it contrasts with the culture in Normandy. In England, after King Alfred, upper-class boys were expected to be educated. The nobility were expected to be literate. Many times they were polyglots. They took an interest in the arts. They were expected to take an interest in the ways of governance and of broader international events. 
That's why Harold, like his siblings, was educated. Why he took an interest in the legal and cultural traditions of the world in which he lived, both at home and abroad. It's why he was literate. It's why he even undertook a pilgrimage. When you're a nobleman in England, especially a nobleman towards the top of the pack, these things were expected of you. Furthermore, Harold and all his fellow nobles were subject to the law. Everyone was. Even the king was subject to the law. Now, we both know this didn't always happen this way. But at least that was the theory. And that's because England, being on an island and being somewhat isolated, had been up to now sheltered from the chivalric culture that was raging through Europe. But Normandy hadn't. Normandy was right in the middle of it. And lately, it had been chivalric as hell. And chivalry was a value system. It was a way of life and a style of politics that was all-encompassing for the social elites that lived under it. It ruled every aspect of life in one way or another. And that influence started early. By the time a Norman boy was in his adolescence, so around seven or eight, a decision needed to be made. Would he join the church or would he be a chevalier? And in many ways, at this point, this bears a lot of resemblance to the system in England, where members of the Werewod and later the Huskarls would be recruited in early adolescence and begin their training. But it's from this point forward that the two cultures take very different paths. And central to it is how they handle their split of education. Say we have two young noble brothers in Normandy, Stephen and Ralph. Stephen, being the younger brother, is destined for the church. And as such, he would be sent to be trained in the ways of the church, and he would become literate. In fact, he would be the only brother who would really deal with anything that could be found in, come from, or even resemble a book. And unless something crazy happens, he'll stay in the church for the rest of his life. Ralph, on the other hand, as the elder brother, is to become a knight, and he immediately enters a kind of apprenticeship for this. He becomes a page, and he's assigned a master and a mistress to serve. As a page, Ralph serves as the master's waiter when dining, and he'd tend to all the master's needs when he was out on the hunt, and honestly, he'd do anything else he was assigned to as a task when he was at home or away. And as far as education went, well, book learning was obviously right out, And instead, Ralph was taught how to fight, how to hunt, how to behave in court, and how much to fear God. And the answer, I assume, was lots. And this would be Ralph's life for about eight or nine years. And then, between the ages of about 14 and 16, assuming he was still alive and did a good job as a page, Ralph would become a squire. As a squire, young Ralph would be taught how to ride a horse while wearing armor how to handle a lance, how to fight with a sword, and critically, how to serve the knight to whom he was bound. Because any time that knight rode off to war, his squire was expected to go with him, tend to his equipment, his horse, serve him at mealtimes, that kind of thing. Then finally, after five to ten years of that, assuming Ralph did well and didn't die in a training accident or in war, he would be knighted sometime in his 20s. And that was pretty much his entire curriculum. We're talking about 15 to 20 years of education. And in the end, Sir Ralph mostly knew how to do two things. Hunting and fighting. 
He wouldn't know how to tend a field or organize a household. He wouldn't know how to keep inventory or store food or milk a cow or build a wall. He might know how to sew a button, but he'd soon have pages and squires who'd do that for him. The fact was that Sir Ralph, the chivalric knight, knew none of the millions of tasks that actually made his society run. And that was exactly the way he thought it should be. Because knights actively looked down on those who did know how to do the things that society actually ran upon. If you had a useful skill, if you could make a table or you could read a medical treatise, or you knew how to deal with a calf and breach, well, you could expect that some guy who couldn't even spell his own name would treat you like shit for being a nerd. If these guys were alive today, they'd be the type of people who describe farming as unskilled labor. Craftsmanship, education, and the arts did not matter to these people. Because Sir Ralph's self-worth and identity hinged entirely on his ability to mete out violence. And since Sir Ralph and his fellow knights occupied the upper levels of the social ladder, that meant that social value in general was tied to one's ability to mete out violence, as that was one of the only real ways to earn social clout. And that, at its core, was what chivalry was in its early days, in the 11th century. So disregard all the romantic associations you have with this word. Chivalry was a brutish, barbaric system that created a glut of illiterate, uncultured young men who were desperate for an opportunity to be violent. And if there wasn't an opportunity that was currently present, these young men would inevitably get restless and try and start a conflict themselves. Thanks to how this system worked, violence was the way for these elite men to prove their manhood and worth. Because violence was glory. It was their path to success. And it was their only path, since, again, they really didn't have any skills outside of it. And it was these dudes who were making up the bulk of nobility in Normandy, France, and throughout a disturbing amount of Western Europe. So even if you took away feudalism, which really was like a machine sent back from the future for the sole purpose of creating wars, well, even if you took that away, you'd still have a ton of wars in chivalric cultures because simply having these dudes around created wars. Because when their liege wasn't fighting enough to keep them happy, these guys would just go and join a mercenary band and fight for anyone who wanted to start a war, you know, provided the pay was good. That's what they did. And think about what that does to a culture. These people were at war with each other on the regular. Civil wars were common, so were assassinations, betrayals, and paranoia. Society was going through political crisis after political crisis thanks to this system. And the incentives meant that the crises kept rolling because every time there was a civil war or a betrayal or an assassination or something else awful, well, some other powerful noble was reaping the rewards from it. Chivalry had such a significant cultural impact that it actually changes the very architecture of Europe. If you look at the architecture of England during this period, you see a lot of burrs, the fortified towns. And those were built for the purpose of keeping out raiders. And for the most part, it stayed that way. England had a few internal wars, but it generally wasn't plagued by civil war the way others in the region were. 
So fortifications were constructed around places where the public gathered in large numbers and where markets, mints, and, and other economic activities took place because the nobility wanted to ensure that they would remain protected should some outside threat come knocking. Simply, very simply, the burrs were constructed for the benefit of the kingdom as a whole, at least in theory. I mean, Unferth in his little shack by the river probably didn't feel all that protected by the burr, but overall that was the idea. Or at least, it was intended to protect the nobility as a whole and the wealth class as a whole. Now contrast that with Normandy. Normandy, as a chivalric culture, was rife with civil wars. And as such, they didn't have a system of fortified towns. They went another way. They built castles, which were held by their chivalric nobility. Castles that were specifically designed to withstand sieges launched by other nearby chivalric nobles. So this meant that Normandy was intensely fortified, but it was fortified in a very personal and very individual way. Alfred and his kids fortified to protect the kingdom from Scandinavian raiders and invading armies. The Normans, for the most part, fortified to protect their own lands from that arrogant chevalier across the hill, who for some reason was still holding a grudge because he seized some of their lands a few years back while they were sick. Furthermore, while absolutely no one would describe England as egalitarian or even free, there were some restraints that were placed upon the king and the nobility. The king was selected by the Witan, and the law was at least expected to apply to everyone. I know it's not self-governance, and I hate it when people talk about this period in English history as like proto-democracy, because it really isn't. But there were some incredibly light constraints that were placed upon the upper levels. And by contrast, the Normans were autocratic. They held a might-makes-right culture that went all the way to the top. Harold, as king, rode to Northumbria seeking their support and approval, and he submitted himself to their judgment. William, on the other hand, was raised as a Norman knight, and he had a very different kind of solution when dealing with reluctant vassals. So, when it came down to it, for as bad as the English nobility could be, and they could be pretty awful, the Norman chivalric nobility was probably worse. And these were the people who were sat right across the channel as King Edward lay dying and named Harold as his successor. That violent honor culture, that collection of knights seeking glory in war, was just across a narrow stretch of water. And don't forget that, due to the way that Edward had arranged his court, there were already a lot of Normans in England. There were even Normans in Edward's bedchambers when he died. So it should come as no surprise that within just a day or two, word of Harold's consecration had reached Norman shores. And according to the 12th century chronicler Wace, this message came on one particular morning as Duke William gathered with a group of his knights and companions in the fields outside of Rouen. They were preparing to go hunting, and the duke had just finished stringing his bow and handed it off to a page, when a messenger arrived. And he told the duke that his cousin, King Edward, had died, and that Harold was now the new king of England. 
William's face darkened. He fussed with his clothing for a bit, visibly enraged, and said nothing to anyone. The messenger and all the gathered knights fell silent as well, too frightened to speak with the duke when he was in a mood like this. Abruptly, William left the party, boarded a boat, crossed the Seine, entered Rouen, and returned to his hall, in complete, rage-filled, terrifying silence. Once inside his hall, he sat down and rested his head against a pillar. And I want to emphasize that he had gone back to his hall, the place where he met with dignitaries and carried out many of his public and political duties. This wasn't like William returned to his studio apartment and plopped down on the futon. This was his hall. And it wasn't just any hall. It was the hall in his capital city. So he had basically just gone back to headquarters. And that meant there would have been courtiers and servants all over the place. And William had just marched in glowering and slumped onto a bench. And I think it's particularly telling that according to Wace, no one dared to speak to him when he was like this. Not his servants, not his courtiers, not even his knights. Everyone just sat in stony, terrified silence and waited to see what the Duke would do. After quite some time, William Fitzosborne, the Duke's seneschal and the son of Osborne the seneschal, entered the hall humming a tune. Those in the hall approached him and quietly asked what had occurred to anger Duke William so much. The Duke and the seneschal locked eyes, and Fitzosborne answered them. There was no sense in trying to deny what happened. Merchants crossed the channel regularly, carrying all kinds of news, including this news. All throughout Rouen, people were already talking about King Harold. They couldn't hide from it. It had happened, and this was no time to mope. Now was the time to act. It was time to write a sternly worded letter. Now, of course, the Duke really didn't know how to write a letter because he did much more important stuff with swords and horses. So he ordered in a few nerds and he told them to bring some paper. You should see me in the crowd. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. And if you're looking for an easy holiday gift, consider getting someone a membership to the BHP. It's cheap, and it can't be regifted, so you're unlikely to see it at next year's White Elephant. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.